You're listening to Decoding Healthcare Innovation with Carrie Nixon and Rebecca Gwilt, a podcast for novel and disruptive healthcare business leaders seeking to transform how we receive and experience healthcare. Welcome back, everyone, to Decoding Healthcare Innovation. I am your co-host, Rebecca Gwilt, co-founder and partner at Nixon Gwilt Law, where we help digital health companies navigate law and policy to build great businesses. Today, I'm delighted to share with the pod Anad Binur, the co-founder and CEO of UCO, which is a series B biotech company that is designing new proteins to treat and manage food allergies. Very top of mind for me as I have a, a child with food allergy. As a, a VC turned founder, Anad has helped UCO raise over $50 million. And I'm looking forward to picking her brain today about uh, how AI is changing healthcare, investment in healthcare tech, what it's like building a healthcare business. Uh, welcome to the pod, Anat. Thanks so much. I'm so excited to be here. Thanks for having me. You're so welcome. Let's jump right into it. So you've got a really fascinating background, MBA, PhD from Columbia and MIT. Just quick shout out to my mom, uh, Liz Rowe, who also holds a master's degree from MIT, uh, to VC, to startup founder, I'm curious, was this a carefully engineered path for you? Uh, I'd love to hear a little bit about their journey. Of course. No, I'm just kidding. Of course not. You know, like uh, such is life, right? So I think I'm a perfect example of like, I always say like the connecting the dots, which in retrospect seem to make so much sense. And really like there's some theme that runs through it. But as you're going through life, you know, sometimes one thing leads to another and you really understand the value of the way it connects like later on. You know, so yeah. the first part of yeah. my career, I was just really passionate about, I, I think the theme that connects it all for me is very much mission-driven work, uh, you know, so the first part of my career is more in the world of like policy and politics and academia in that respect, and then it slowly evolved and moved into more, as you mentioned, kind of really in some respects randomly into the investing side, and the plan was really to stay there for a very long time, and because of, uh, you know, one of my best friends and something really cool he was working on caught my attention and really checked all the boxes of things that I just loved investing in as a VC. And that's the, really the origin story Vuko of our current biotech company. I decided to go with, to what's called the other side of the table. Most time right. entrepreneurs become VCs. Most VCs don't really want to become entrepreneurs because they don't want to go back into the roller coaster. But yeah, Absolutely. I decided to jump in. But happily for me, our, you know, the VC that I was at, uh, Innovation Endeavors, it's a VC in Palo Alto. Um, I was there for close to five years. And happily, when I transitioned to start UCO, they stayed super involved and have invested in UCO and on, on, are on my board. So I was lucky to kind of be able to keep both worlds together. Yeah, I, I, I you know, I, I always ask about this journey at the beginning of these discussions because um, you know, I talk to young people who are, uh, you know, racked with anxiety about making the right next decision for themselves in their careers, because that next right decision is going to, you know, be the gateway to them having success or not having success. But so many successful people, including you, have just sort of stuck with what they're interested in and passionate about. And only in in hindsight, do they see how all of those decisions sort of brought them to to where they are. So I I love to hear it. I think it's really encouraging for especially folks starting out. Um, so let's talk about UCO. Tell me a little bit about UCO. You, you know, definitely want to get to what it's like to be a VC turned startup founder, but, but sure. I'm, I'm fascinated in the technology. And, and of course, I am not a technologist, but when I was reading about what this, you know, what UCO does, I, 
I had that moment of like, oh my God, we can do that. That's amazing. <laughs> that, that's true. You know, VCs always ask like the why now? And Uko is definitely the, the, has good answers as to why now. So yeah, super briefly, you know, and simplified, like Uko is a biotech company and we're focused on solving food allergies and really protein-based allergy in a very unique way because we are creating a new approach to how you think about the possible therapy um, for, for allergy, like peanut allergy, for example, where you can modulate patient's experience without actually triggering an allergic response. Now, this sounds strange a little bit, but it's a new concept in how we think to solve allergy. So say like we're focused first on peanut allergy, but our tech, which is based on a computational protein design platform that really allows us to go to a protein and design it for specific characteristics that we want. In our case, we want to keep certain good characteristics of a protein. So for example, peanut proteins have a side to them that can actually teach your immune system to lower its level of reaction and do good, almost like train it to get better. But then there are other parts of that same protein that actually trigger an allergic response. So what we know how to do is to isolate between those two parts and create a new protein that can then be used as a therapeutic such that we kind of get rid of the bad. And the bad in this case is the part of the protein that's actually triggering the allergy. Sure. And keep the good, which is the part that's actually training your immune system. So I'll just say that some needed context for this is that really right now, if you have a peanut allergy, the only thing you can do, or any other food allergy, I'm just using peanut allergy as an example. You, you, the only thing you can do is really avoid the peanut. Walk around with enough and be really careful. Or go yeah. through something called food allergy immunotherapy, which is exposing you to small but growing amounts of the peanut protein itself. Now, this is life-saving and very, very important. But in this idea, you're actually using, you know, the curative compound here is the peanut which is also the thing you're most allergic to, right? So anytime nice. you come to your patient, you have a safety issue because they may react. So you get stuck in this deadlock that forces you to choose all the time between efficacy and safety. You can't necessarily choose the most efficacious routes of administration because they might be dangerous or a little risky. So you end up getting treatments that are very cumbersome for patients. They often take a really long time. You have to start with really low dosages because you're all the time keeping safety as your number one goal. Going back to UCO, because of what I said, because we can go to protein and design it specifically to kind of get rid of the bad, make it safe, non-allergenic, but keep the good, keep it, um, you know, immunogenic, teaching your immune system. We now can do lots of different things in how we treat patients. You know, we can uh, maybe use more effective routes of administration, higher dosages, and so on. And so our hope, we're going to have to show this in human trials, of course. But our hope is that at the end, we'll be able to come up with a safer and more efficacious therapy for life-threatening allergies. We're starting with peanut allergy, but it's going to be relevant for any protein-based allergy. So that yeah, means no. all food allergens, environmental allergens, and even venom allergies like bee stings or wasp stings. They're really hard allergies to walk around with. So is it me or are, we, are there more allergies now than there used to be? Right? Like, it's, is this a growing thing or, 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 or is this... Uh, just sort of us becoming more aware of it? It's a great, great question. And you're totally right. I mean, first off, I'll even just share my own story. You know, I grew up in New York and in Tel Aviv. Um, never had a kid in my class with a peanut allergy or some other sensitivity. And now I'm almost never just like this on a call and, uh, you know, in a dinner or meeting friends somewhere where the people around me, even regardless of UCO, have food allergies somehow connected to their lives. So the data also backs this up. 
like just to give you a sense in the past few decades, there's been a rise in like 50, 50% in kids with food allergies. And I think the stats now is like one in 13 kids in a classroom in the US has a food allergy. And every three minutes, for example, someone get, goes to the new, uh, to the emergency room because of a food allergy. So Incredible. it's definitely, it's definitely true. That is the reality as to why it's happening. There isn't one clear, you know, scientifically backed explanation that all the key leaders in the space will stand behind. So there are some hypotheses that people believe are probably the leading reasons, but there isn't one proven data backed explanation. So there's more unknown than known about this field, which is shocking. Yeah. Well, so and then, you know, then we just go go fix it. Right. Uh, yeah, we, you know, people have been working on it for a long time. I think this is actually a hopeful time for patients. There's lots yeah. happening in tech advancements, regulatory advancements are suddenly allowing more and more innovation, which is a re- really hopeful for, for families who, who have kids with food allergies. Yeah. And I imagine what the, the sort of course that you described, the alternative to this right now, requires a lot of time and uh, consistent access to healthcare and in the U.S., that is not a guarantee, certainly, for much of our population. So, you know, not only finding a new pathway, but but creating accessibility to things that that sort of are not accessible currently. I mean, this is life-saving stuff. Yeah, I, I totally agree. There's a, you know, there's importance in equal equality and distribution in the treatment of food allergy, for sure. Current treatments are really arduous for families. They require you know, a lot of years and months and years of going to clinics every few weeks for several days, sometimes flying to another clinic because the treatment can only be done there. It's not easily accessible, but at least in the first step, we have, you know, a a potential approach and even the FDA gave its first approval in 2020 for food allergy drug. And those are really important steps forward in the field. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'll certainly be watching. Okay, so I, so what I, what I read about UCO is that you use patient data and machine learning to, um, to help with the engineering of the food proteins in the in the manner you described. You know, along with the rest of the world, I've become absolutely fascinated with, you know, GPT four and how AI is changing the nature of work. And for ten years, I've worked with clients using AI and machine learning in in digital health you know, primarily mm-hmm. data analytics solutions and clinical decision support tools and chat boxes, chat bots and, and, and the like. But I just returned from a conference in London that was focused on biotech and life sciences, which is a relatively new space to me. And mm-hmm. I was surprised to learn how AI is being used in that space, right? It makes sense mm-hmm. to me that it would be used for data purposes, but but really there are incredible things happening in the life sciences space, um, in the biotech space using AI. You've yeah. obviously incorporated some of this tech at UCO. I'm interested in your thoughts about what, well, I'm interested in what that actually looks like. What does that mean with your company and, and your sort of observations about how other companies like yours are, are using AI tools? Yeah, I think this is a game changer for how we think about healthcare and, you know, and in the combination or intersection between biology and the ability to use computational tools, um, we can really shift the way we think about everything from healthier food to, you know, developing better and faster drugs um, and just creating a more efficient healthcare system at large. I'd say specifically, we have a really interesting combination between our computational team and our experimental team. And I'll explain more in a sec, but what it allows is like really fast iterations and research to get to the best 
potential solution. So in our case, oh. you know, we are the first step in our in our approach because again, remember, we want to look at a protein and for defined characteristics that we want. So in our case, we want it to be as much as possible, lower its allergenicity all the way to make it be making it safe, but maintain the parts of the pro- of the protein that are good, right? Mm-hmm. So in the first stage, we take blood samples from all over the world. We've built a massive, you know, database. We have partnerships like 18 hospitals all over the world, in Asia and the US and Europe and Israel. And we use it to really map in a really detailed way. What is it on the protein that's actually triggering allergy and how is one person different than another in, in those parts? We've discovered really interesting and new data that was unknown previously. So that's step one. But now- I, I imagine yeah, yeah. I imagine it's an enormous amount of data. It's just generating it just enormous amounts of data. It is a lot, a lot of data that you can slice and dice in different ways. And exactly, it's a great question because it leads to the second step, which is, okay, now we have to get some intelligence out of this and then use that to predict. And this is where AI comes in. Our computational team looks at this, uses algorithms to start predicting based on this data what are changes do we want that we could make to the protein in the fastest and best way that would hit our metrics? And remember, our metrics is we want it to be safer, but still yeah. maintain the good parts, right? So then they move quickly to our experiment, our experimental team. That's the protein design team that now takes this knowledge, kind of starts to re-engineer, micro-engineer proteins. This is at the atomic level, creates lots of different variants, and it keeps iterating, you know, testing it back on the sample, sending it back to the computational team, and this, you know, the ability to predict test, predict test, predict engineer test is a very fast iterative cycle that, you know, what we weren't able to do some, you know, years ago and allows us now to get to better results and faster. It's just absolutely incredible. The the other thing that I heard was that, you know, not just in product design, but um, and data analysis, which obviously is is the use case you were describing, but also in the um, clinical trial space yeah. that AI tools are being used to, uh, you know, also identify patients, identify cohorts, certainly take data from clinical trials and at a pretty fast pace, analyze them. Are we going to see a lot? I mean, is it really changing what we can do in biotech, this this oh, sort of technology? For sure. Yeah, for reasons you, you touched upon, you know, it's an intelligence layer that allows us to do something that just we weren't able to do it. It's It has like two parts. We're generating massive amounts of data. And then how do you, A, make intelligence of it, tie, con- connect dots in really smart ways such that both you can do things that we know how to do, but in a more efficient way. Yeah. Um, and then improve on that and then even better create new things that we didn't even think about or right. didn't connect dots around, whether it's disease or patient data, you know, and things like that. So um, I definitely think it's, and this is going to sound super generic and high level, but obviously as everyone understands, it's changing the game. And I think specifically in biology, it's allowing to insert some structure and, you know, into a field that before was maybe a little more desperate or less systematic. And now in combination with some of these tools, you're creating a field that's a little more engineering structured. You know, we can even see that UCO um, has more prediction to it and more like systematized approaches that we can repeat again and again in better ways. So that's super high level and generic, but it gives a sense of where it can take us, right? And how we can use it. Yeah, yeah. And I am I imagine that the capabilities that it creates, right? You talked about sort of helping a process that exists before, but the capabilities that it creates, it seems like it's going to 
go into hyperdrive, right? Like we're, we're yeah. the the speed at which this is changing the game, of course. using your your terminology, yeah. is incredible. And um, you know, all of us that are sort of aficionados of healthcare innovation are just, you know, we're just trying to keep up. <laughs> oh yeah, I mean, totally. And and as you probably see it from yeah. your fields too, it has lots of implications for all the surrounding fields, right? Like on the one hand, it's very hopeful and allows us to do a lot of amazing things. On the other hand, everything has to catch up the way regulatory, thing, you know, systems think about this, the way ethical Absolutely. systems think about this and, and the constraints we may want to put in place. And it's always a little bit of a catch-up game and a cycle. And you can see how the systems start to calibrate now. And then we move a little more forward and all the systems calibrate again. And kind of new fields get generated around this because it's suddenly just create sub subunits of knowledge and, and then capabilities information. So it's exciting. So let's shift a little bit. So I want to, I want to talk about the correction that's happening right now for valuations in the healthcare sector and the difficulties so many companies are having raising their next round of funding. It's such a hot topic every, everywhere I look, given your unique background um, in, in VC, do you have any insights to share about, you know, why it's happening, who it's happening to, and, you know, what we can expect to see happen in the next year? You know, I I think there's just been so many people already talking about those predictions and assumptions about why it's happening. And, you know, some are correct and some are not. Uh, maybe there were high valuations and uh, companies were IPOing without having enough really to back up some of the valuations that were going on and, and the IPOs or really large rounds. And then why are we seeing it right now? Beyond that, there's lots of microdynamics. No one knows. I wish, I wish we need to predict how long it will last. I think what I think about more, um, because it's I see it all around me and the impact it's having, especially in biotech. Biotech is hit especially hard. And I'd say, interestingly, you're seeing funds still investing really early or really late. Yeah. But everything that's in the middle is having, is really in crunch, right? In that's crunch. what I mean and, as well, yeah. Um, there, there are amazing companies that are doing really important things and life-saving, you know, testing life-saving, have the potential yeah. to test life-saving drugs that are not going to make it because of it. So I think the bigger question, I don't necessarily have yet good answers, but what I think a lot about is structurally, what does it mean about the way we invest and capitalize um, biotech, right? Because this has huge human value. I, I ended up in this field because I think it's one of those fields that really intersects like deep tech and really big human problems that are so important to solve, right? So how do we make this, whether it's leveraging AI and some new technologies, but something's got to shift so that when there are moments like this, um, we don't lose out as human beings right. Right, on possible solutions. For so I think... Th those are more structural questions for the way we invest in the space, um, especially in early stage and preclinical companies. So companies in the middle there, right? Not the very early stage, not the very late stage that are sort of faced with a, a, yeah. a tough funding environment. And, you know, some of them may be, may be listening. What, you know, what advice do you have for what maybe they should be focused on right now to make sure that they sort of make it to the other side? What I'm, what I'm hearing is folks are, you know, um, reducing workforce and they're trying to slow the burn to make their runway longer. But, you know, other than that, do you have any thoughts on, on what they could be focused on right now? So I think, you know, at this point, because of everything that's going on, the main, th the main thing, and I, I don't think I'm 
saying anything new to whoever is in this world. Like you really have to just be uh, as innovative as possible and creative as possible in how you approach this. You know, hopefully for companies that have really supportive boards, a lot of internal investors are, are supporting their portfolio and helping them kind of ride out the storm, thinking through partnerships and other things are really yeah. important as well. Um, so I really think at this point, founders and CEOs just have to be very focused on their priorities, align the vision and mission of their team and make sure that, you know, all their management and everyone's very aligned on what is the core things that need to get done and most important to bring value to the company and then just be as creative as you can about it all. And is that sort of why you like the operational side, you know, on the, you know, when you were on the investment side, this is, this was the advice that you were probably giving to your portfolio companies. You know, what's the, what's, what's the thing you learn when you hit the ground um, as a founder that you maybe didn't know when you were on the VC side? You know, like I always say, I think that the best thing VCs can, can actually do is experience the operating side. Like I think it makes you a much better VC on so many levels. There's something about understanding the roller coaster, the experience, the day-to-day of this person who just walked into your room, you know, this is their blood, sweat, and tears. And it's everything from the way you ask the questions, the kind of questions that really matter at the stage of this company, understanding what that founder may be going through as they're pitching, you really shifts both the interaction, um, the relationship, but also I think the, how smart and exact and um, kind of, uh, you know, relevant to to the stage the company's at, the questions of the diligence are. And I think later on, if you make a decision to invest and you're on the board, it shifts like your empathy and also your really your understanding of what the CEO is actually going through right now. So I think having both experiences makes for, if you're a VC that moved to be a founder, I think you have a great tools you know, a set of tools in the way you think about problems and um, you have this great advantage in thinking about fundraising. And I think the other way around, if you were an entrepreneur and a founder and went to become a VC, everything I just said really holds true. Yeah. I love that you, you know, I love that empathy becomes part of the discussion, certainly in any situation when you can put yourself in the other person's shoes, it helps us sort of pull together and don't the world need more of that? Yeah, definitely these days for sure. (laughs) So, so thank you so much. I really, really appreciate you spending this time with me. I have a whole list of questions we didn't get to. So uh, maybe I'll have to circle back with you another time. I wish you so much luck as you build UCO. It is so needed by, by many of us. And thank you to the listeners for listening to Decoding Healthcare Innovation. I'm Rebecca Gwilt. I hope you enjoyed today's discussion with Anat Binur about how AI is changing the world of biotech and what really cool tools are emerging for for some of us, uh, you know, suffering from allergies. If you haven't already, please subscribe to Decoding Healthcare Innovation. Follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter. And as always, you can check out the links and resources in the show notes um, and find out more about our work with healthcare innovators at nixonwiltlaw.com. Thank you again, Anat. Thanks so much for having me. It was really a great conversation. I appreciate it. And talk to you soon. Talk to you soon. Thank you for listening to Decoding Healthcare Innovation. If you like the show, please subscribe, rate, and review at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like to find out more about Carrie, me, or Nixon Gwilt Law, go to nixongwiltlaw.com or click the links in the show notes.